Okay, so lots of good stuff happening and stuff that's important for you and I to ponder and think about and maybe find ways to get our minds off of the things that are creating anxiety in us or fear in us or maybe a little bit of anger in us. I don't know if that's the case for you. Maybe it's just me. Don and I were having a little chat about two weeks ago and I started telling a story about a thing that I was frustrated with and I was about, I don't know, two minutes into the story and I could feel my energy sort of getting poured into this story. And I was frustrated, a little angry about the thing. And, and, uh, and, and I, the more longer I told the story, the, the angrier I got and the more sort of animated I got and the more sort of, you know, you know what happens when you tell a story like this? You, you start to sort of embody the story and, and it becomes a little bigger maybe than it should have been or maybe even than it was. And, and that's how this story just mushroomed and my anger was clear and it was obvious and my frustration was just right there on display for her to see. And as I'm telling this story, I can see her looking at me and she's thinking, she's pondering, she's wondering how she's going to respond to what I'm telling her. And she did the very selfless and sometimes dangerous thing that a spouse can do. She steps into the thing that, you know, might put her on the firing line, right? Because I'm angry, right? I mean, I'm just whipping anger all around and she's going to step into my proximity you know what happens when you do that with somebody, when they're angry? You, know, you might just get lopped yourself, right? And so she steps in and she says, you seem pretty angry about that. <laughs> and I thought, that was a you know, pretty stupid thing to say, I thought. <laughs> uh, really? You picked up on my anger, did you? you know, but I didn't say that. I just thought, oh, it just kind of made me irritated. And so the discussion ensued, and, and at the end of it, you know, we decided, well... Your, your anger really isn't proportional to what happened and to how all that went down. What are you really angry about? And I said, well, get out of my business. You know, that's none of your business. No, I didn't. I said, that's a great question. I should probably ponder that. So I did. And so in some of my time with God or maybe alone time, me just sitting and pondering, the first question isn't, you know, what does the scripture say or how, do, how, does, how do I live out my Christian faith? My first question is, you know, when I sit down with God is, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty angry. I'm pretty mad. And God says, yeah, I know. I mean, he doesn't say it. I don't hear it. But he, he's aware of it, right? What's that about? I don't know. I guess I'm going to have to sit with it for a while and think about it. And reflect on it and figure out, is it the thing or is it something else? Is it underlying? So if you were to begin praying right now and we said, how are you? Let's, let's imagine that your prayer time with God begins with this question, how are you doing? And you knew that, you know, there's no pretense here. You can't pretend. It's not like you're going to greet somebody outside a church building. I'm doing great. You're going to just kind of pull off the layers and, and tell God how you are. What would it be that you you would say, how would you unveil it? How would you uncover it? I'm, I'm anxious. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty angry, Lord. Maybe you wouldn't even use words that you might use with other people that expect you to keep it, you know, clean and dressed up. How are you? What's going on? How do you feel? What are you anxious about? When we unveil these things before God, I believe, he says, now, now we can get to work and, and figure out, where is it that you don't trust me? Where is it that your fear takes the place 
of belief? And how can we move forward together? I mean, the, the tough times that we're in, they're not, not new. We look at history and realize that people have been through all kinds of difficulties and pain, but they're new to us, aren't they? And the difficulties that we're going through now, whether it is the political strife or the whatever it is, you, you fill in the blank, whatever has you anxious, the tension at work, tension at home, the fact that you're around people and you're not really a people person as much as you would like other people to think you are, whatever it is that's in place one of the benefits that we could say is true for this eight or nine months is all of us are beginning to rethink what is a part of our lives and what we want to be remaining a part of our lives whenever we get back to whatever next is, whatever that looks like. What's worth hanging on to? In fact, when we get stripped of things, whether it's activities or school in person or church in person or celebrations or parties, when we get stripped of them, our, our impulse is to add everything back as we would think they should be. But it's not happening this year, is it? It's not at all. In fact, there's no sign of it happening anytime soon. And who would have guessed when all of this started that we'd be staring at the holidays and having recommendations that our Thanksgiving plans have been canceled? Who would have guessed that? In fact, some of us are so anxious to add things back. There were, believe it or not, 53 people last week that got on a cruise in the Caribbean on a big boat, 53 people, crew of 70, 53 people who were customers or clients or cruisers or whatever. They were on the boat. One day in, there were seven cases of COVID. The cruise ship turned around embargoed for a couple days while they dealt with the issue. Now those COVID cases are still on the cruise ship. And I think yesterday the healthy ones embarked. I mean, how, how desperate for normal did you have to be to get on a cruise ship right now? I want normal back too. Maybe you do too. But before we add things back, maybe it's an important time for you to sift and weigh your values. Think about what matters most. Decide what stays, decide what goes. It's a beautiful moment in history to weigh that out. And as we do that, especially as we push toward Thanksgiving, a very different Thanksgiving this year, we're going to allow ourselves to spend just a couple of Sundays, for us a couple of weeks, thoughtfully, heartfully, individually, and collectively, in a passage of Scripture at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, it's a prayer that Paul prays. It's one of his most famous prayers. You've heard it. You've heard pieces of it anyway. It's the prayer where he uses this word immeasurably, that God is willing and he can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or dream or imagine. This beautiful prayer that Paul prays, it's a longer prayer, starts with verse 14, but I'm going to ask that maybe you spend some time in it over the next few weeks reading it thoughtfully, carefully, and allowing it to reshape your values and what matters most. There might be not, there may not be another time in history in your life that you could spend time doing that. And so we will. We'll take a look at a piece of it today. He begins it with verse 14, and he says this, for this reason, I bow my knees. Isn't that a funny phrase? You're going to bow your knees? I thought you bowed your whole body. Maybe you use your knees when you're bowing. In fact, the, the phrase here simply just means in the Greek, this is picture that he uses his knees to bow. 
And it's really hard to translate into the English. And so the best that NIV translators could do is say, for this reason, I, I, I bow my knees. Regardless, it helps you get a picture that Paul, as he begins this prayer, has, has entered this moment of worship. And this moment of worship has sort of caught him by surprise. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been listening to a song? Maybe it's on the radio. Or maybe it's right here in this room with Josh and the team leading us. And maybe it's the lyrics or a combination of chords or something musically reaches in and grabs a hold of you. And you find yourself maybe just shutting your eyes without even knowing it. And you are sort of caught up in this moment of recognizing that you are just, you're making God's image, but you're small. And that God is big. And that he is powerful and that he is sovereign, and that there is a place and a role that you play, but God is all. He is everything. It's, it's when Paul is saying that we are in Christ. This is what he's imagining and picturing. All through Ephesians, this has been his picture, that we are found only in Christ. And when Paul begins this, he says, this prayer is for this reason, I bow my knees. And for the last several weeks, we've been talking about this reason. He says, for this reason. You've got to ask, well, what reason? Well, he's been talking about it for almost three chapters now. Paul has described the dividing wall of hostility being completely taken away and destroyed. He's using the analogy and the truth, the reality of the Jews and the Gentiles being at odds, which has been the case since the middle pages of Genesis. Always fighting enmity and bitterness and hatred and for good reasons moral reasons ethical reasons religious reasons i mean they're they're not getting along has a, a strong foundation in good stuff stuff that you don't get along with other people for stuff that you have decided these people can't be my friends anymore stuff that you have decided i am not going to walk with this person any longer that's the jews and the gentiles and Paul has described their unity, that there has been now the creation of one new humanity. And Paul says, it's for that reason that I bow my knees. And the time that Paul lives in, it's worse than what we're living in. I mean, even in the early church, the Jews and the, the Greeks who had become Jews, they're not getting along. The widows aren't getting along. Needs are getting overlooked. They're fighting among themselves. Not only that, Rome is still in charge. And it's not only, not only is Rome in charge, it's going to get worse and it's getting worse. It's heating up for the church. I mean, what they're about to experience is persecution that is unthinkable in our day and time, except for in places in the world where people are literally killed and maimed and tortured for their faith. That's about to happen right in front of Paul. And even in the middle of it, Paul worships. He says, for this reason... I bow my knees. And then he says this. The very next piece of this phrase gives us this picture. Ephesians 1.10, here's your reminder. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and everything on earth. And so this picture that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 1, he's echoing at the beginning of this prayer. 
He's saying there will be a time that God will bring everything together and it will be all made new. It will all be one. It will all come together. And this picture that Paul paints is one that is in development. I think that many Christians live for the hope of heaven and have given up on peace or joy or happiness or even comfort in this world. I think some of us believe this idea that, well, you know, sure, heaven's going to be incredible, and, and that's where we're living for. This is not true for Paul. Paul believes that the dividing wall of hostility is gone today and that we are in the process of working it out. And sure, it will come in its full culmination at some point in some time where everything is made completely new, but it's happening now. And it is. You just have to have eyes to see. I know people who have reconciled relationships with people that they're very much at odds with only because of Jesus. I know people that hold incredibly different political views but have strong intimacy, intimacy with each other because they believe the same things about who God is and what he's up to. They just disagree on how to get there. I know people who have reconciled and built pieces of the kingdom in their families or in their relationships with others and have decided that regardless of what else happens among us or around us, I will love and respect other people no matter what pulls or tugs at me. It is being made new right now in front of us. Now, with the headlines that you're reading every day, it can feel like it's not. With the tension that you see and things about to bubble over or maybe come apart at the seams, it can feel like we're going backwards. But through this prayer, Paul reminds us what he said at the very beginning of this letter. He, is, he will bring and is bringing everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. When I was in middle school, it was so long ago. In fact, we didn't call it middle school. We called it junior high. That's how long ago it was. Um, I needed some furniture, and, you know, we didn't spend a lot of money on furniture, you know. And we didn't go to the furniture store and buy bedroom suits. We bought our furniture at garage sales. Maybe you did the same thing. Up the street, there was a garage sale, and me and Mom were messing around and looking around this garage sale. I needed a dresser, and we found a dresser at this garage sale and brought it home and went into my bedroom. I was probably 12, 13 years old. This dresser was my main dresser, kept all my clothes in it, and I put piled stuff on it and trophies and toys and all kinds of things and just abused this thing like none other, and it just was beat up. When Don and I got married, we had a couch and a love seat that we had bought, splurged on. Our end table was a box that we put an afghan on top of, and in our bedroom went this dresser, and it was our dresser for years. Austin was born... And uh, we graduated to another dresser that we found at another garage sale. And Austin got the dresser that I had when I was 12 years old. Austin's now 27 years old. And this dresser has been in our basement all this time. There it sits. And so this year, Don and I decided we were going to redo this dresser. This dresser's been through the punishment of two teenage boys who could care less about what their furniture looks like. And there it sat down in our basement. And so we hauled it up to our garage, had no idea really what was underneath all the years of abuse and scratches all the way down to the wood. I mean, it looked awful. 
It was stained a pretty dark color, you know, very 1980s, this dresser looked like. Had layers of lacquer on it that had been there since the day it was made. And we began to take a sander to it. And it was methodical, thoughtful work. It was good work. In fact, we took a break from the news for a few days just to sand this dresser. And to leave it behind, not pay attention to any headlines, but take some sandpaper to this wood and watch what happens when you take off layers and layers down to bare wood. We discovered that this dresser underneath the years of use and abuse and lacquer and stain was this incredibly beautiful blonde maple wood. The entire dresser is maple. It's made of ambrosia maple and tiger maple and sugar maple all put together. And underneath this stain is this incredibly beautiful piece of furniture that's probably in better shape now than it was in the day we got it probably 40 years ago. I mean, think about the stuff you've put together and bought from Ikea. Where's it going to be in 40 years, right? This dresser, sturdy as can be, now it's waiting and it's ready. It's in the process of being made new. It sits in our garage. I don't even want to touch it. I don't want to put any stain on it. I just want to look at the beautiful blonde wood that's underneath all that mess. I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but God is making all things new. He is. It's in process. Maybe he's taking off layers of stain or lacquer. We're just in the middle of it and we're watching he can do it for you too. But only if you bring all your stuff to him. What are you angry about? What are you anxious about? What, what are you sad about? Where is your trust? Where is your hope? And it will lead us to places of worship. Because God is sovereign. And God is intimately personal with us. And he is walking with us through this. And all he wants is for you to come to him open-handed and when you do, he begins to work. He takes out some sandpaper. And he says, ah, now we can get to work. And he starts to do his thing. And it begins with worship, just what you did today. I mean, wasn't there part of you when you're singing the lyrics to it as well? Wasn't there part of you that kind of rose up to say, it's not well? How can, how can we even say that? And yet it's true, isn't it? All of it is well. And in time, God will begin, continue, and finish making all things new. Then Paul says this. For this reason, I bow my knees. He prays to the Father, to the creator of all things, from whom, say it with me, every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's a beautiful phrase. And he just throws it in there at the beginning of this prayer in Ephesians. He's saying this, I, I, I'm... I'm bowing before God. I, I, I've just been caught up in a moment of worship and I can't help but exclaim and declare how good and powerful he is. And, and I want you to know that who I'm praying to, who I'm kneeling before, who I'm giving worship to, is this, this God, he is the one that every family on heaven and earth is named. And even this isn't a great translation from the Greek. Every family makes it sound like there are a bunch of different families. And that's not really what the Greek says at all. What the Greek says is that everyone on earth is a part of the same family, one family, God's family, that everyone has gathered their names from him. Everyone you know is part of this family. 
Every person that you disagree with, every person that you get along with, every person that you have great affinity for, they're part of your family. Every person that you would hope you never have to spend one more minute with, they're a part of this family. They're with you. In other words, Paul has said it now 12 different ways since the beginning of this letter. There's no us in them. There's only us. That's all there is. Have you ever been to a, a family reunion and you looked around and you thought, what in the world? Does that happen to you? I remember the first time I met some members of my family, it was at uh, funerals, typically for one of my grandparents. The first funeral I went to, we, I grew up in the metropolis, the big city of Lexington, Kentucky. It was the big city for us. And my grandfather passed away, and we journeyed about two hours into the depths and the hollers of eastern Kentucky to have a funeral at this funeral home. This is back when, you know, funerals were a thing and open caskets were a thing and all of this. I remember meeting some people I'd never met before. Not first cousins, I knew all of them. Not my aunts or my uncles, I knew all of them. It was that third cousin twice removed or my second aunt or something like that that somebody would introduce to me in the middle of this funeral parlor and I would look around and look at them, people I'd never met before. I was probably, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. And I remember thinking something along these lines. These folks are not my people. Have you ever thought that when you looked at your family? You thought, I, I don't know. Some of you have thought it pretty severely. You thought, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I'm adopted. These are not my people. I can't be a part of this crew. I mean, I know, I know my name is theirs. I know we're related by blood. But the way they think and the way they act and the way they talk, there is no way. These are my people. And what Paul's saying is you have never been around anyone that is not a part of your family. Never. Never. Doesn't matter who they are, what they believe, what they think, what their ideology is. Everyone is a part of your family and you need them. You need them. Oh, maybe not to get through every day, but it is the body of Christ and the unimaginable breadth of humanity that helps you become who you are, helps you think what you think, helps you shape, form your ideas and your beliefs, the stuff that matters most to you. You remember the Greek myth of Narcissus? Remember that Greek myth? Narcissus, this Greek man who was so unbelievably handsome that he stumbled upon his reflection in the pool and he looked at it and he loved so much what he saw that nobody could draw him away from him staring at his own reflection. He just loved himself so much. This is what's happening in relationships in our culture. What do you think? Do you think what I think? Because I love what I think so much. If I can find somebody who think like I think, then we're going to hang out. Because why? I love what I think so much. I love what I believe. I love my values. And God has made it clear throughout Scripture, Proverbs, iron sharpening iron, that only when conflict happens... Are your ideas and your beliefs shaped? We've all turned into narcissists, right? I love what I love, and it's me, and I'm going to find somebody that looks a lot like me. 
and then we're going to do life together. That's what we want. But you need people who think differently than you. You need people in your life that create that friction. Uh, I know, you need to choose it well, and some you need some distance from. But if we're always looking for agreement and same and like and us, we'll never, ever grow. This is the danger of a divided culture. This is the danger of driving a wedge between people who think or believe differently. It works wonders for politicians, but it's death to people who really want to grow and want to even understand what God is up to in the world. The world is a big place, and you and I, we need each other in diversity and relationships. This is so important. Every family, nobody you've ever met is not a part of your family. And so we don't get to say, you know, those are not my people. Sorry to break it to you. They're your people. And they're in it with us, every one of them. And we haven't even yet got to where Paul's praying. And here's how he begins to pray. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Only through the Holy Spirit could Paul write sentences like he does in Ephesians and many of his other letters that are so deeply impactful in terms of theology or belief or truth. Paul is saying, look, there's something that happens when he prays, when you and I pray, that is outside of you. It's not something that you make happen. It's something that God does. And God does it when we come to him open-handedly. And then God does his thing. I don't understand it. It's mystical, it's magical, it's powerful, but it's real. And Paul says that I'm going to pray that he would strengthen you with power, but this will only happen through his spirit in your inner being. It's a funny phrase that he uses here, inner being. It's probably the best translation that we can come up with from the Greek. The inner being is this inside person, this inner person. That's literally what the Greek would say. And there is a place in you where decisions are made, where life is comprehended, where your values are formed, that the Holy Spirit has access to. And Paul prays for the Ephesians and for us and for all who would ever live and draw breath. His prayer is that God would strengthen us with power in this way. That doesn't mean we don't exert effort. I mean, you got to open it up. You got to read it. You got to find the quiet spot in your house. You got to open up your hands. You got to go and think thoughtfully about the last argument you had and how you were kind of a jerk about it and allow God to speak into it. You have to do the hard work of surrender and openness. But then it is God's Spirit that steps in. He tells us why. He tells us why. I, I pray you be strengthened with power, happens on the inside, and here's why. So that Christ may, what? Dwell in your, through faith. This is only one of a few times in Paul's letters that he talks about Christ dwelling in us. Paul would rather say that you are in Christ. He would rather say that you fit, your little tiny self, you fit in the, the all-encompassing 
Jesus. That's where you fit. But a few times, four to be exact, Paul says, Christ actually dwells in you. It's a powerful image. We know what the presence of God does, don't we? I mean, it's the very beginning of Scripture. It's, it's why they built the temple. It's what they did to experience God's presence. It's, it's what Adam and Eve experienced as they walked through the garden on the cool of the day. It's why they had the Holy of Holies and it's separate from the various parts of the temple. The presence of God is something that is holy and unique and powerful and everybody wanted it and desired it. The presence of God in us, can you imagine? And what had to be done before a priest, the high priest would enter into the presence of God, how holy and clean he had to become. It was only once a year. It was a very unique experience. And now Paul is saying, all that has changed. It's gone. It's different. This is powerful. Christ dwells in your hearts. What was God's presence for the people of Israel? It was a a, a cloud by the day and a pillar of fire at night. It gave them direction and comfort. It gave them everything they needed to know where they were supposed to go and how they were supposed to get there. It's what Jesus does for you today in your heart. What am I supposed to believe? How am I supposed to walk? How am I supposed to love? It happens and it is part of you because Christ is dwelling in your heart. And that can be strengthened if you surrender. That's what happens. More of Jesus and less of you. Remember last week, here's one of the things we said. You can't solve a spiritual problem with a political solution. To get the context of why we shared this, you can go back and listen to last week if you want, but probably a better way to say it for this week or maybe even a better way overall to make this statement is this. You can't solve an internal problem with an external solution. You can't do that. This is why Paul prays, I pray that your inner being would be strengthened. And that that strength would only come from Jesus. That's it. And so the problem you have at work is an internal problem. It's solving a problem, fixing a relationship, moving forward, designing a thing, moving a strategic plan around, whatever it is. It's an internal problem. You are using the resources that God gave you to sort out your way forward. Every problem you have is an inner problem. And they cannot be solved with an external solution. In other words, it's sort of good news, bad news. Your problems that you have, they are not out there. They're not. Everyone is in here. It's a lack of surrender, or it's how you see it. It's because you didn't trust, or you give up your anxiety. Every problem you have is here. It resides here. It's true for you, it's true for society, and it's true for culture. I can't tell you how many times Don and I have had conversations and we have fixed everything in regards to the pandemic over lunch. If they would only. You've done the same thing? If they would, why don't they? If they would listen to us and, you know, we sit by the phone and they still haven't called. The problem isn't out here. The problem is always in here. Always. Listen close. If laws could make us behave properly and morally and ethically and with love, then it would have worked in the Old Testament. Can you imagine a better law than the one that God gives Moses on Mount Sinai, writes with his own finger? If laws could solve our problems externally, 
fixing an internal issue, it would have already worked. It didn't. Paul makes it clear what the purpose of the law is. You can't solve an internal problem with an external solution. And so Paul says the problem is only fixed when Jesus dwells in us and becomes stronger. That's what happens. There's one other place that I'll mention that where he talks about Christ dwelling in us. You know, I mentioned there's just a few. Here's my favorite scripture in the entire New Testament. It's Galatians 4.19. Paul says this, and he uses almost identical language to Ephesians chapter 3. He says it this way. My dear children, remember it's Paul writing. Paul's a dude, in case you didn't know that. My dear children, for whom I am again in the what? Isn't that a bold thing for a man to say? Isn't that a crazy thing for a man to say? I am again in the pains of childbirth until, say it with me, Christ is formed in you. It's a beautiful image. It's a powerful image. And Paul kind of co-ops this feminine language because he can, because the Holy Spirit guides him to it, but it's still a bold choice. A few years ago, I had some kidney stones and uh, they were just awful. If you've ever had kidney stones, you know, you, you might know this. But I, as I was reading about kidney stones and trying to figure out, you know, what to do and how to manage this pain and all of that for about seven days I had them. I remember reading online that women said often that the, the only pain they've ever had that's worse than childbirth was when they had kidney stones. And I looked at Donna and said, you know, I'm reading that the pain that I'm having right now is worse than the pain that you had during childbirth. And she gave me a look. I didn't say anything more about that. See, Don was pregnant with our second, Carter. She was two weeks overdue. They wouldn't even let that happen these days. This was 24 or 25 years ago. Two weeks overdue with Carter. When Carter was born, he weighed 10 pounds, 12 ounces. And, uh, and you know, was a cesarean-born baby. And, but after hours and hours of labor. And so, you know, Donna gave me a look that was like, do you remember what I went through, right? And I had to say... Yeah, I'm going to go nurse my kidney stone pain, right? When Paul uses this analogy, he's inviting every man that's ever existed to step into the feminine experience of childbirth and say that Paul believes that when Jesus is formed in us, and this is a powerful image because almost every image in Scripture is patriarchal and from a male perspective. And now Paul uses this feminine language to say the most important spiritual process that every person, male or female, goes through is like childbirth, where Jesus grows a little bit more in you every day, just a little. Jesus, embryonic, gets a little stronger. When Paul prays that we would be strengthened, this is what he's praying for, that we would love more like Jesus, that we would forgive like Jesus forgives, that we would give like Jesus gives until Christ is formed. So not only is Paul claiming a feminine point of view, he's saying this is true for every person who walks with Jesus. This is what it looks like. This is the power that Paul is praying for. And when I read this in Galatians 4.19, I'm reminded of John the Baptist and what he said. John the Baptist was preaching and Jesus was getting some disciples too and he was gathering some disciples along his way. And 
John was on the other side of the Jordan and his disciples looked over and saw another little church starting, saw another little rabbi doing his thing, saw Jesus. They must have forgotten that when Jesus walked up, John said, look, it's the Lamb of God. His disciples said to John, look, there's a more popular rabbi across the river who's getting a little more attention than you're getting. And, you know, John's role was, of course, to be the forerunner. And John just simply said to his disciples, that's how it's supposed to be because he must, what? Increase and I must decrease. In other words, Christ is being formed. And when Christ is being formed, he grows and I get smaller. This is the essential component It goes along with walking with Jesus. This idea, or that Christ is formed in us, or that he grows in us, this idea of humility that we become smaller and he becomes bigger. And this is why it's quoted more than once in the New Testament that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the what? Humble, that's right. This is why it says in Proverbs that pride goes before destruction or a fall and a haughty spirit before a fall humility is saying before the lord i have no idea how things are supposed to go or what direction we're supposed to go here's what i do know that i must surrender to you and give you everything that i've got here's the first part of the prayer this is what we've talked about for this reason i kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. There's a second half and we'll get into it next week. But starting with verse 14 in chapter three and all the way to the end of the chapter, Paul prays this prayer. This is part of it. And my hope would be is that you would take time this week Maybe to settle yourself, find some quietness, and spend some time with the last half of Ephesians chapter 3. And before God, open-handed, simply say this, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing in the world these days. I think I know some days, but mostly I don't. What I want to know is what you're doing in me. And so may Paul's prayer be the prayer that you pray over yourself and the people that you love. May you strengthen us by the power of your spirit in our inner being. Give me wisdom. Give me insight. Help me know how to love. Help me know how to forgive. And if you'll sit in that place, then I'm confident that God will meet you right there. I cannot think of a better way for you to prepare, not just for Thanksgiving, but for Advent season, than to make space and time in your heart and in your life for Christ to be born in you. And so, Lord, right now we pray that you would build us up from the inside out. Lord, we pray that the words of Scripture would be deeply rooted in our hearts. Lord, we ask that in the days to come, as we prepare for a Thanksgiving that is unlike any other, as we have questions about where the world is headed and how things will unfold, as we wonder about the health of our friends and our loved ones that are struggling with 
sickness, illness, the possibility of an unknown future. Lord, we come to you open-handed, open-hearted. And we echo John the Baptist's prayer that you would increase in us, that you would be born in us, or that each of us would pay attention to the Jesus in us, your son, that he would grow more fully and more completely, that you would build our lives, Lord. This is our hope, and this is our prayer. And in the name of Jesus, we declare this truth.